Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at this fine morning. And I'm excited because we have with us uh, Mark Gillian with us, and he's the ESI team is conducting risk assessments, training, and program and plan development, and exercise scenario development. And I, I think once we start getting into this conversation, um, a lot of questions regarding how we take assessing risks and and really create a good exercise around that. And Mark has a a great uh, background. We can check out his bio um, in the show notes. And we're going to get into it. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. And thanks for your uh, interest in Emergency Solutions International and some of the projects we're working on. So <clears throat> when you're thinking about risk assessment, right? I mean, it seems to be this, this area. Um, what, are the, what are the key points that you look at when you say this is, this is definitely something that we should be planning for and training for? Yeah, so as far as risk assessment goes, what we see as far as gaps uh, is that folks aren't working together, that there isn't a full picture with regard to the stakeholders in relation to uh, preparing for community uh, community risk. Uh, so whether we're dealing with a, a First Nations community itself or a large municipality, what, uh, what folks need to know is that there's going to be a number of stakeholders that are brought to the table in relation to all of the risk scenarios. So they should really be part of that risk assessment process. So, you know, I mean, we talk about doing thyrus um, here in, in the States, the threat assessment analysis, um, and then implementing them sometimes is harder than not. Well, what are the steps that you see once you find that risk and then you want to implement solutions to it? Todd, can you just repeat that question? Sorry, we just had a little bump on the line there. Oh, no worries. Um, what I was asking is, what do, what, how do you look at, like, uh, like with a when you do a risk assessment, you find out that gaps and you, and you create a solution to uh, fixing that gap. How do you go through to implement that with, your, yeah. with people? Yeah, that's a, it's a terrific question because there's lots of opportunities. And for, for our firm, we're big on program validation. So once we've got uh, risks identified, uh, there can be a number of different ways, including technology uh, that could be brought to bear to bring stakeholders together to create, for example, common operating picture uh, during a crisis. But as well, what we advocate is uh, a, a really uh, uh, a really progressive, continuous improvement program where stakeholders have the opportunity to practice together. Uh, as you as you probably know, we hail from Canada, so I might use hockey as an analogy, and I offer that. Uh, oftentimes we'll see uh, corporate partners or municipalities or even provincial governments that maybe haven't uh, taken the opportunity to bring all the stakeholder groups together uh, to practice. And it's, it, it would be like going into an NHL playoff game, having read a book about hockey. We got to give folks an opportunity to practice together. And as, as well taught, uh, build those trusted relationships because we see when we look back at incidents that, we, that that uh, the risk was identified, but then uh, you know we had an incident and things went poorly. Generally, the the start of things going downhill is was the lack of trusted relationships uh, in advance. So that's something that we we advocate and work on heavily. The other is the use of technology to ensure situational awareness 
and a common operating picture. My grandmother would say, you know, uh, something looked horrible because the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And what we've seen is uh, really in the last 10 years, there are lots of different technologies that have been brought to bear to be able to bring everybody to that common operating picture. I'd offer nuclear uh, in North America does a terrific job uh, using uh, technology to ensure that vertical communication right from uh, boots on the ground site right up to the regulator and all the horizontals in between. But now we're seeing some really good, uh, you know, programs and apps that can uh, assist uh, stakeholders in advance and be part of their regimen for training and practice. Let's talk about that um, concept of of the. I, I always call it the the peeling back the onion a little bit. When when you start seeing mistakes occur, right? Um, uh, when an event goes sideways. Um, and it always, it's never just one bad decision. It's, it's multiple bad decisions uh, that, that get you there. So you think of like, say Katrina, for instance, um, why that response went really bad. Um, it wasn't one decision that was made. It was lots of mistakes. Um, how, how does doing this risk assessment and then doing the training to that help alleviate those bad mistakes being made in a, on game day? Yeah, so uh, number one, if you have realistic uh, exercises and really tie your exercise program back to a standard. So here in Canada, we use uh, CSA Z1600, our uh, national standard for uh, emergency uh, uh, management and uh, business continuity. Uh, that we're, we're, We've got a programmatic approach to pick up on gaps before we're in game day. You know, and, and, and as you know, Todd, I mean, you're well experienced. Every exercise that you do, there's a litany of uh, ways, uh, we call them lessons to be learned, uh, that we can start to feed back into our program. And if we've got an annual cyclical regimen uh, of continuous improvement and we invest in advance, uh, we're, we're sure to do better when we're up, up against it with a, with a, uh, a situation that we maybe, maybe is a little bit more serious uh, than, we, than we expected. The other thing is being able to prep with technology in advance uh, and our relationships to ensure that we have emergency support functions in place. And, and for corporations, for example, that they're part of the process. Uh, when we look at our critical infrastructure, that they are part of a process and they're not siloed within our communities. And it's a lot of work. But if we look at true risk assessment, what is really, really key is that we do economic impact modeling in advance. Oftentimes, when you look at uh, like a disruption in supply chain, loss of critical infrastructure, we can see in advance the millions of dollars that will stack up. Uh, you know, in, in a community due to, due to the, the disrupted economy. And that gives us an indicator of what should we should be investing in advance to make sure that our programs are commensurate with the level of risk in the community. Walk me through um, a typical exercise that you guys would put together. Uh... Okay. So ideally, we like to start six months in advance, uh, which, which sounds onerous. Uh, but really to do a great job of exercise design, we need time to bring stakeholders together. And let's, let's trust that the exercise design process itself is a medium for the learning experience for all the stakeholders involved. So again, no matter who the host of the exercise is, maybe it's a critical infrastructure that has a regulatory requirement. Maybe it's, they've got tailings ponds or they're uh, 
LNG facility or a refinery, they, they've, got a, they've got a duty to bring the folks from the community that would be affected together in advance. So that exercise design process can be part of it. So we start out with uh, the following. Our exercise design is based on strategic objectives, tactical objectives, common critical tasks among stakeholders, and then uh, position-specific critical tasks that are all outlined in, in advance. And that takes uh, a couple of months. We just, we just did an exercise down in Tampa, and it took us months to prepare for this. And, and it, it, it wasn't like we were on the stakeholders every day, but to bring everybody together to agree on the objectives and the critical tasks that we would be exercising is key. And you can't do them all. You can't do them all in one exercise. You, the, you, we need to sort of uh, basically shrink them down that we're going to be effective on game day and, and trust that we're going to do it each year and work all of our objectives in over a five-year period exercise regimen so that we're, we're in a five-year cycle, we're going to hit all of our necessary objectives. So once, our, once we've got those objectives and critical tasks, identified and, and we're sure that we have all of our stakeholders identified. Uh, and, and a lot of that one, uh, Todd, is based on planning documents that we go to and we go through all the planning documents and make sure that they don't, that they're not antiquated, make sure that uh, we're, we're involving all the, all the stakeholders. So for example, in one exercise that we were doing in, uh, in Western Canada, there was, for example, a correctional facility that was adjacent to critical infrastructure that was named in the plan, but they weren't actually connected. You say, folks, you know, they've got that warden's got to be connected within that exercise. That's part of building those relationships. So in that big beginning period, again, objectives, critical tasks, then we get into the story. What's the scenario? What are the injects that we're going to go through? And we'll have the we 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 make sure that the injects, in fact, will cause the participants to perform the objectives and critical tasks. And we make sure in our after action that if there were objectives that were missed, that somebody that by virtue of the scenario uh, not fulfilling its, its intent and maybe missed a couple of object objectives, that they'll go into next year's exercise. The master inject log, when I talk about that, it, you know, it is it is points in the story that challenge certain stakeholders. And, and one of the things that we're seeing, Todd, uh, as far as um, uh, an emphasis within stakeholders is that uh, uh, messaging to traditional and social media. So that's becoming almost, uh, I'd say, like a 30 to 40 percent component of the exercises where we've got. Uh, stakeholders that are saying we want to make sure in time of crisis that there's no delta in our messaging. You've got you know one agency saying something and another saying the other, and maybe we did a great job, but the public focuses on that delta in messaging, mm -hmm. and the story becomes you know uh, they want working together type of right. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how do you overcome like artificialities? You know, like when you know you have somebody who's in operations says, "Oh, I'm gonna." I'm going to order up a thousand firefighters and then they go, okay, I got my thousand firefighters, which is not, you know, realistic. They don't understand. How, how do you, what do you add into that to say, okay, it's going to take X amount of hours to ramp up, you know, blah, blah, blah. How do you, what, how do you work through that? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of different ones uh, that you can, that you can run into. And we just ran a, an exercise in the Prairie provinces that, that was for a regulator environment Canada, but it was critical infrastructure was calling into bringing a bunch of stakeholders together time to prep that folks just don't arrive on game day is number one that they have first of all that they've got realistic expectations 
And then uh, in this particular exercise, uh, there were actual uh, real world injects that were inserted in that we really wanted action. So things like meals, everything I always say from, you know, porta potties to pizzas kind of thing. Like that, there were real things that were happening. Uh, there was logistical movement of equipment that was really timed and things of that nature. And, and almost training folks uh, uh, about the exercise in advance to make sure that they understand the differentiation between what is a, an exercise inject, what's a real world one. The other thing is being confident enough as an exercise team that we can stop in the middle of the exercise and have a learning moment. If it feels too serious and if it feels uh, like we're checking the box, it's time to dial back from that and, and, and call a stop. So what we'll do in, a, in an exercise where we've got it vertically integrated from the incident command post in the field up through the EOC and even up to a regulator or perhaps a senior leadership team in corporations or government, uh, that, that we'll be able to call those learning moments and that folks are briefed in advance that we can do that, we can do that, uh, that it doesn't feel as though the exercise going sideways. They like a no duff in an exercise if we had an injury, uh, if we've got a learning moment, we can call a bit of a stop in the vertical and make sure that folks, okay, hey, folks, we've got an opportunity to pick something up here. Rather than waiting to the debrief when everybody's itchy to get out of here, let's <laughs> talk about this right now. Something has occurred that was a bit unexpected. Let's learn together at this moment in time. And, it, and it's really helpful, Todd, to, to start uh, to dial back that seriousness. Like what we've learned is that folks feel vulnerable in exercises and, and if we can work that out, it's such a such a better learning experience that they feel that they're uh, they're testing a system. And, and one of your shows talked about procedure and process stuff, and and uh, that that we are indeed we're we're, we're uh, examining the program and plans. And it's not individuals that are put under the gun kind of thing. We don't do that. Like there's no trap doors in our exercise. Right. And and to be able to do that and take that exercise artificiality out. Is, is absolutely key. So some mechanisms in there and some confidence and trusted relationships with partners in advance that we're not just sort of showing up on game day, rolling this exercise, and it feels like we're putting it together with duct tape and bubble gum kind of thing. One of the things that I, uh, I, I find interesting about exercises is sometimes we are afraid to allow uh, those that are participating to, to exercise the failure, right? Because I think you learn a lot when you make those mistakes uh, during during training, and then you know what is your philosophy on that? Do you yeah. do you s- allow for mistakes to be made to so to a fail point so people can go back and go oh I see what it's like when something goes sideways or do you stop that early? Cool, that's that's a that's a great question. It's it's our job as an exercise design team to anticipate contingencies. What we would never want to do is take a client host and have them in a vulnerable position and almost sort of freelance in the middle of the exercise. We have a pretty good idea, usually based upon folks uh, planning documents in advance, where there's going to be some areas that they're going to have some trouble. And uh, we will really design the exercise to be one or two steps beyond where they're at so that they're getting better. 
but they don't feel like they've got a kick in the ass at the end of the day when they're going home. Mm. And that we're, we've got very confident facilitators at each level in the vertical to make sure to cut it off before it stops being systems analysis and starts being an individual that's been put into, into play. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a direct example. We're, we're big proponents of the incident command system. I'm a, I'm a fire and hazmat uh, CDRNE guy or WMD guy at heart. And I still have that operational feel. And I've been in exercises where you put under the gun and you fail. And, and, and some of it, so that's great when you're hardcore tactical folks, but, but, Less and less is that is that acceptable from the standpoint of you know instructional design and, and our 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 folks. We're big time ICS proponents. We dovetail ICS into everything we do. If we see that there isn't ICS and you know deep into folks' documentation when we start, we we know where we're at in the exercise design process. But we'll watch for things. So uh, unified command is huge. If if we don't get a sense in advance that folks are going to work together in unified command, like we wouldn't go down that road of having, you know, fist fights between sheriffs at, between different counties. You know what I'm talking about. I do. So, uh, and and we, our job is to, is to, is to contingency plan around those things and have those discussions in advance and not have, you know, we're going to exercise something, not fight about who's in charge. Right. So we need to sort that all out in advance, but we watch for things like unified command and we'll make, let folks go down a little bit of a road and then pull them back and have a, have a, a stop and do a, a lesson sort. The other one I'd offer Todd that we see quite a bit is unity of command, both in the EOC and in the field. If we see it in the field that we're bolting organizations together, particularly like tactical shooters or hazmat, and you're starting to bring organizations together and, and it's, it's murky around fo- who, who reports to who as a supervisor, particularly tactically, we'll immediately call a safety stop. We won't let that one go, but we'll let it evolve to the point where it starts to happen, and then we'll call a safety stop. Somebody's going to get killed. In real life, somebody's going to get killed. So we'll cut that one off and use that as a learning moment. But we see uh, unity of command in the EOC. We see that as a regular issue as we're coming up the incident curve and then down the other side. So folks that are pulled to two different supervisors, so it's murky who they report to. Uh, we're a big proponent of scribes in the EOC and anything tactical that's the critical uh, incident decision-making, and we're trying to integrate that in. Uh, scribes oftentimes are pulled, uh, unity of command issues, or uh, if you might have folks that haven't stepped out of their operational role, and now they're, they've activated their plans and now they're in an EOC and they're pulled between a couple of roles or a, a previous supervisor. We'll pick up on that. And usually it's a feel. It's a feel in the EOC around unity of command. It feels chaotic. Uh, span controls the last one that I'll talk to you about that one. So we'll let folks go down the road of span control issues in the EOC and they feel it. They, they feel stressed you know, our exercise are very realistic and you'll start to see folks being stressed. What we'll do is we'll let it take its course to the end of an operational period. They do their briefing and then we'll say, okay, folks, here's where we're at. We're about to start a new operational period. We have a new incident action plan, but we're going to ask you something as your facilitator, how'd that feel? And if folks don't speak up, we'll say, okay, we noticed that it looks stressful or you, you, you know, you usually have somebody hard driving to say, yeah, something doesn't feel right. Say, well, 
what we're seeing is a little bit of unity of command pull, and we're seeing uh, we're seeing a, a span of control pull for certain positions, like the planning chief is not getting support or is having to report to two. You know, there, we've got something going on here, and and, and we want to bring uh, order from chaos. So that's part of our strategic objectives that folks be, start to become not only competent but confident in their roles that they feel comfortable. It shouldn't feel chaotic. My goodness, we're doing some of the things that are the most complex things that humans can do together as a team. We, we've really got to support them. And I come back to practice that they get time to practice. We always say in Canada here, we're, and I, we were just with a group, a mayor and council and executive here uh, just uh, two nights ago. And they have an opportunity to practice a couple times a year, but they would take their children to practice hockey once a week for like, 38 weeks a year. So you say, you know, uh, let's practice more together so we sort these things out. And uh, exercise is a great way to do it, but they've got to be appropriate to where folks are at. Work out those, uh, work out those um, uh, bugs that we would see if we didn't practice. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I'm a big proponent of that as well. I'll tell you a funny story. We, there was a big fire here in California a few years ago, and um, they, they came out for the press briefing. And the fire chief says, oh, yeah, we have a unified command, and I'm in charge. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to use that one. Use yeah. that one. So um, what, what are the major differences, um, or maybe they're subtle, maybe not major, uh, between uh, the Canadian system and, and the American system? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we were very fortunate to be able to work uh, both sides of the border uh, with our Canadian colleagues. We work on a number of different federal projects and we've been uh, really pleased. I'm in St. John who runs with Canada, by the way, which is about a six hour drive north of Boston. So we would be the next port city north in, uh, in the old days. And, and we've been fortunate, the Eastern uh, Canadian Emergency Management Group working with FEMA Region 1 uh, in the New England states. And so we do, we do see some differences. Uh, uh, number one, uh, we see that your folks' uh, state-to-state EMACs are, are so much more robust and uh, action more than ours. Uh, the foundation piece for those resource typing is something that Canada isn't isn't quite there yet. A lot of our a lot of our support is, but we certainly have like the we have the IE map with your folks in the states, and we've got CCEMO across Canada, province to province, and there's some there's some there's some great areas where where we are, are good at supporting each other. But a lot of it in Canada is is a person based system, so very relationship based kind of thing, rather than it being a true system that's hardened in. Uh, we certainly got the governance piece there to enable it, uh, but we, we fostering those relationships, which we've seen go down a little bit downhill during COVID because we haven't been out there, you know, doing our thing. But you folks do resource typing uh, so well and mission ready package like that whole piece as the backbone to support, uh, you know, state to state is, uh, is really cool. Uh, I would say that your, uh, more standardized in the U.S. and we're a little bit more organic. Uh, I think that your relationships with tribal communities have come a long way, like certainly during COVID uh, and how folks are working together where we're really building relationships with what we call our First Nations communities. And we're fortunate to be part of that. Um, and uh, our, our EOC training and our position specific training in Canada 
is not as robust uh, as what the access that you folks have to training. And I would say folks here in Canada get into roles oftentimes that might often even be a little bit uh, above their heads or they might uh, be challenged based on their you know, access to education. I was very fortunate. I was able to go to uh, uh, the fire Academy in Emmitsburg in October, 2000. It was one of it for a couple of weeks. And when one of the, the, the best thing, it was real eye opener for me is pre nine 11 and uh, to see folks in there and uh, meet folks like Bobby Halton and different folks from all over the country uh, and get a flavor of what it should feel like. So having uh, centralized training, like even things like your, you know, your, your FDICs, like, a, a, like in Indianapolis and, and, and that access to education in Canada, that's a little harder to get. And we need to do a better job of that. And I would offer that in Canada, we need to bring back our uh, centralized Canadian Emergency Management College to start to bring folks uh, back together in that regard. I would offer that we, we, we're horizontal. Uh, 90% of our population is lined up along the border with the United States of America. So we need to be interoperable uh, with the United States. I mean, we pull on resources. Uh, we, we need to keep those uh, trade uh, and, and uh, supply chains open. So we, in a way, would I, I'd almost say that the, the U.S. is a big brother, big sister to where we're trying to be. And we need to align ourselves up uh, interoperability-wise. We've got some great leadership here in Canada. We've got some great technologies coming online. So there are some real bright spots where I'd say we're almost ahead. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're, we would like to be a little bit more like the U.S. when we grow up kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's funny. On the, talk about the border. Where I, when I grew up, uh, upstate New York, um, there are places where if you went the wrong turn, you could end up in Canada. <laughs> you know, so. That'd be bad. Next thing you're an alcoholic and <laughs> saying, as, hey. <laughs> as, as, as a young man, I spent some uh, some quality time in Montreal for sure. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, what happens in Montreal stays in Montreal. Um. <laughs> Sorry, you have me laughing. So building a relationship. I mean, I know that we've helped each other out, you know, across the border, uh, especially with some of the wildland fires um throughout the years. Um, do you do you see more um of of that cross border training going on? Yeah, I do. And and you know, the the the, I, I, the incident command system is the blood in the machine to make those things happen, not just at the tactical level for like our forest firefighters that, that regularly train back and forth across the border. I mean, we see uh, you know, hazmat technicians that are enabled through the NFPA standards to be able to dovetail. So a hazmat technician in Canada, Canada is the same as a hazmat technician in the state. So that that part of making sure that everybody is on, on the same team enables, first of all, those relationships, but then, you know, cross-border support and things of that nature. But what I would offer is I see uh, more strategic relationships emerging, things like between our uh, Canadian Border Security uh, uh, and, and your CDP uh, for things like supply chain disruption, which we've seen, you know, during COVID and during 9-11 when discussions started, our Transport Canada lining up uh, you know, with with the U.S. with regard to cross-border around hazardous materials and how do we make everything easier, but as well when we do have an incident that we can create a common operating picture. 
you know, what if we've got an, a hazmat incident that's at the border where we're both responding or we're pulling on each other uh, for resources or intelligence? Uh, really, really important. Number one, that we can speak the same language. Two, we got trusted relationships. But number three, that we've got common platforms to work under, that we can, that we can feed information and pull information appropriately, appropriately, that we don't, you know, that we don't go too far. But at the same, at the same time, that we are partners in response. And I would say, you know, we always have solid tactical relationships, you know, in border communities, uh, and and certainly for like for folks like our wildland firefighters, you know, as an aggregate across the across the country. Uh, but now those strategic relationships, folks like Environment Canada, Transport Canada, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, uh, CBSA, our, our border our border officers, and and not just our land borders, but as well on water. So when we look at like a like a spill, like out our way, if there was a spill between Canada and the U.S., we're a, we're we have a big oil refinery here in St. John. Uh, Canada's only liquefied natural gas terminal, nuclear power plant. Uh, if we had a, a huge super tanker coming in through Passamaquoddy Bay in the Bay of Fundy, and there's an international spill that we're we're able to work together, and that those federal agencies line up. And that our technologies line up to make sure that we're not fighting with each other during a crisis. And, and, you know, that doesn't come together overnight. I'd say the foundation pieces are there and we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, we're very fortunate in Canada that we've got a, uh, the science and technology division under the Department of National Defense is called Defense Research and Development Canada. And it fosters those types of relationships. And there's tremendous leadership there to make sure that we are truly interoperable across the border. And that's something that we need to work on every day. Absolutely. Mark, we're here at the end of the, uh, of the program on our time. So I do appreciate everything you've given us this morning or this afternoon on your end. Um, and we should do this again sometime soon. I'm sorry, Todd, repeat your question. Oh, I said we should do. I said we're coming here to the end uh, of of the show. I said I said we should do this again sometime soon. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks very much in your interest in Emergency Solutions International. Really appreciate it. Would love to speak with you again. Absolutely, Mark. Hey, everybody! Thank you so much for joining us today. And you know, exercise and design, and and really putting the training, seeing how it goes into and becoming realistic into the field on a game day, um, is critical. And, and as Mark was saying, we should do this more than just uh, you know, once a year uh, for training. If you wouldn't uh, do that for your sports teams, I don't know why we do that for when it's uh, big disasters. But hey, follow us on your favorite podcast player. Um, and that being said. Stay safe, stay hydrated.